Welcome to Trauma-Informed Parenting, where you can find information about adoption, foster care, parenting a child with a capital letter syndrome, such as ADD, ADHD, FASD, SPD, on the spectrum, etc., and trauma-informed parenting, all in one place. I'm Kathleen Guire, your host, mother of seven, four through adoption, former National Parent of the Year, author, teacher, and speaker, but more important than any of those things, I'm a parent just like you. I know what it's like to raise kiddos with trauma histories and capital letter syndromes. I used to feel as if I were the only one struggling, and because I felt that way, I isolated myself. I don't want you to feel alone in your parenting journey. So grab a cup of coffee and join me for Trauma-Informed Parenting, a Coffee Break Podcast. Hi, Kathleen Guire here. Welcome to this episode of Trauma-Informed Parenting. I am going to be talking about part two of four powerful ways to break the cycle of intergenerational trauma. So if you have not listened to the first episode, I suggest you go back and listen to that now. But if you're going to just go ahead and listen, that's fine too. I'm going to start with a definition, a couple explanations, just as reminders. Intergenerational trauma is a concept developed to help explain years of generational challenges within families. It is the transmission or sending down to younger generations of the oppressive or traumatic effects of a historical event, or, and I will add, lifestyle. Now, in the show notes, I have tagged or linked all of the sources that I have used for these definitions. A growing body of research suggests that trauma, like from childhood abuse, family violence, or food insecurity, among many other things, can be passed from one generation to the next. So genetics are passed down, and so is trauma. Now, we didn't used to think that way, but science is proving that that is true. Now, I want to stop here and say before I get into today's podcast, although the effects of trauma can be passed on genetically, they aren't the determiners of your future. They're not. It can be changed. Now, like I said in the last episode, I created some graphics that I will send to my email followers. If you are not following me by email, just get on traumainformedparenting.com and just click to get your free guide. There's a bunch of buttons on the front page. And then you'll be on my email list. Okay. Now, I have two graphics that I created. And the first one is just about what the intergenerational trauma cycle does. Okay. And this is just, you know, my rendering of it. Just to get you thinking about it. So the parent's trauma is first. And then what happens is that passes on to the kids. Now, because I have adopted four kiddos, and I also have kiddos with capital letter syndromes, ASD, dyslexia, we just 
We're just capital letter syndrome soup in our family, which is fine because we get along great. So then the parents have their trauma that passes on to the kids, and the kids may already have trauma in their bucket from other sources. So the kids have trauma. And because I adopted children, then I added this, we also have secondary trauma. Because when we are living in the house with kiddos who have experienced trauma, we parents can get compassion fatigue, but also we have to remember that their siblings can get secondary trauma, okay? So then what we have next is we have learned trauma responses. And I don't mean that we sat down in the classroom with a pencil on a piece of paper. No, they're learned because they are the way our parents did things. It's the way we teach our kids to do things. Then we add in the secondary trauma, which gives us a whole new level of different kinds of habits that we develop in spite of or because of or to deal with those. And then we get learned trauma responses and repeated trauma. So this cycle keeps repeating and repeating, repeating. And I'm going to share a story about the first time I ever like realized that this existed. And this was before science had proved it. This is when I was in high school. Okay? So when I was in high school and my parents opened up a food pantry to serve the community, every Wednesday we were open from like 9 to 12 and people could come and get food orders that we put together for them. And so I would see some of the, my friends from school, their parents were coming in and getting food orders. But me being in high school, you know, I didn't think too much about it because what was really surprising to me was when I got to college and I would go back to help my parents at the food pantry when I was visiting, my classmates from these families would be coming on Wednesdays and picking up food orders. I was just like, wait, wait, wait a minute. That that kid was above me in class. She was always smarter than me. She always did really well. And now she, here she is picking up a food order because she can't afford groceries. Now, of course, I'm not going to share any names or anything. That's all personal. But it was like, that's the first time it really struck me. And I had to say to my mom, like, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand why that is happening. And she did not use the words intergenerational trauma. She just talked about the cycle repeating, the poverty cycle repeating, the way of doing things like these um, having babies early and not being able to afford to care. And let me just say, if that's you, I'm not putting any judgment out there. But that was like my first realization that those things were going on. Because I wasn't even looking at myself yet. (laughs) We had trauma in our family, but I was just kind of ignoring that. And one of the proofs that I was ignoring that is when I got to college, I got an eating disorder. I, I don't know why I say it like that. Like I got it. Like it just attached itself to me. I was not prepared for going to a big university and I everything felt out of control. So the one thing that I could control was how much I was exercising and eating and these things. And I just like went overboard with it. Like every time you eat a cracker, you have to put ankle weights on and you have to go walk this this many miles. And I was crazy. 
but I didn't think I was crazy at the time. And I didn't realize that I was affected by my parents' trauma because sometimes we have this idea like, okay, I left my parents' household and I no longer have to deal with any of that stuff ever again. And we see that portrayed in the media a lot, like, or a movie, like, oh, as soon as I turn 18, I am out of here. Well, what they don't realize in those movies is like, they're just, I imagine like, you know how I like word pictures, they have this backpack, not just the regular go to school backpack, but the kind that we used to use when I was younger, when we went backpacking, where you had your sleeping bag, you had your clothes, you had the stuff to start a fire and you had like, they had this backpack packed with hundreds of pounds of stuff that they're taking with them. And that I was taking with myself, not pointing fingers here. That was me taking things with myself. And in fact, just going to, you know, lay it all out there. I started having um, panic attacks when I was in college. And a lot of it was just unresolved grief, trauma, things that I hadn't dealt with that I thought, I am going to go to school. I am going to be independent. I'm going to get away from, and my family wasn't going through anything horrible at that time. My family was doing very well, but it was that residue, which I talked about in the last episode, where I gave the word picture about the pampered chef, little brown scrapers, like we have that residue of trauma on us if we don't take care of it, if we don't face it, if we don't acknowledge it, if we don't try to make sense of and peace with our past, we need that pamper chef scraper. We need to start scraping the trauma out. Okay, now let me move on to the cycle being broken. The intergenerational trauma cycle being broken. Now let me just tell you, this is super, super simplified. There's a lot more to it, but if you at least get this framework in your mind, it will help. So we have the parents' trauma, and it's passed down to us. Well, one way that this is resolved is they create new habits and responses. And then if you're bringing a kiddo into your home, or they have a capital letter syndrome, like you adopt or foster, and or capital letter syndrome, then we have to form new habits and responses to their trauma for them. That's co-regulating. They're not ready to yet. So it's our job to stand in their place and help them through that. And then if you have the secondary trauma from a child who has a trauma history in your home, then we have to form new habits and responses to that and teach everyone in the family the new habits and responses. And then we have what I call redeemed trauma. And redeemed trauma is when you have taken your trauma, you have begun to make sense of and peace with it, you are on the path to healing, and then you comfort others who are going through the same thing, including and starting with your children. Like, that is really tough. I've been there. I know. You're disappointed. You're frustrated. You're angry. I've been there. That's tough. You acknowledge that they have feelings too. 
and that you acknowledge that they have trauma too. And then you begin to take that out into your sphere of influence, your extended family, your friends, your church. Hey, that's really tough. I know. I've been there. Let me pray for you. Or I went to this counselor and she was really good. Or I read this book and it really helped me. So we begin to help each other. And I have a scripture for that, but I'm not, I'm, I'll get to that in a little bit because what I want to talk about is hurt and harm. One of the reasons that abuse is so painful is because it is the complete opposite of what God intends for us to receive from our fathers or our mothers. And the original quote is from Holly Girth. I just kind of, you know, changed it around for what we're talking about. But yeah, abuse is painful. Now, when we're parenting and we want to parent without that residue of trauma, we have to know the difference between punishment and discipline. I have said this so often on the podcast that traditional parenting does not work with kiddos with a trauma history. And this will help you a little bit know the difference between traditional parenting and connected or discipline. I also have, and I will link this in the show notes, there's a chapter in my book, How to Have Peace When Your Kids Are in Chaos, Why Traditional Parenting Doesn't Work and What Does Work. And you get you can get that free chapter at any time. I will link it in the show notes. But listen to this little list. Punishment is born from anger. Discipline is born from love. Now, when I say discipline, if you have been traditionally parented, you may think of someone with a switch or a strap or something to hit you with. That is not what I'm talking about. And that's why we need to even reframe our beliefs when it comes to parenting. That is not what discipline means. The, di- the word discipline is actually from the same root as the word disciple. It's, you know, you, you're coming alongside your child. And yes, you are giving them consequences, but you have their best interest in mind to help them along the way. So punishment is someone coming down on us. Like you can never do anything right. And you did that yesterday and I am not forgotten. Discipline is to lift us up. Say, I see you're struggling with that. You know, let's try a redo or try that again. Or maybe you need to wash those dishes again. You know, discipline is lifting someone up. Punishment wounds our hearts. Now, when I talk about well, that's the way it's always been kind of parenting. We were often parented not because our parents were like, oh my goodness, let me write down all these punishments. I'm going to wound their hearts. No, it's because the way that they were parented passed down and the way they parented us passed down. And now we're trying to have new habits and responses. We don't want to say words that wound our children's hearts. Obviously, we don't want to. So if that was the way that you were parented, then it's okay to say, hey, you know what? 
I'm going to work on some new habits and responses. But discipline keeps us from greater hurt. We don't want our children to get into greater hurt. We don't want them to run out into the street. Or we don't want them to get in relationships where they're the people pleaser and they're being tormented because they're not accepted. Okay? Punishment makes us feel bad about who we are. I know that was a very, <laughs> I just had to pause there for a minute because I was like, man, that was like the, the parenting technique years ago. It's like, you should feel bad about that. You should feel bad. You did that. You're a bad person. Like, no, we don't want to say those kinds of things to our kids. What they may have, what they did may have been bad and may have been harmful to someone else. But discipline affirms our identity as beloved children of God. And I think that sometimes there's a huge disconnect between our identity in Christ. And like I said on the last episode, you know, you know, I'm a Christian. I am going to put this in there. And if you're not... Please listen, because I think that you can really benefit from this. Now, listen to this. There is a disconnect in our identity and what we want to feel about ourselves and how we parent our children often. We want to feel loved, affirmed, accepted. We want our identity to be secure, like you are wonderful. You're amazing. And the Bible even puts it this way, that before you were born, God knit you together in your mother's womb. We want that. But sometimes, (laughs) raising my hand here, that doesn't come out in our responses to our children because we begin with making them feel bad about themselves. And I will tell you, like, just, I don't know, as just from my experience as a writer, Like when I'm writing a book, and I have a book right now that's being revised by my wonderful friend, Lori, who reads through and finds inconsistencies and things like that. And she's just like, well, I don't think this fits here, or maybe you should move this, or did you mean that? And sometimes when I open the file and I start looking at her comments, I can be like, Oh my gosh, I'm the most horrible writer in the world. Why am I writing books? But she never says those things to me. She's just like, well, this doesn't make sense here. You need to fix this. And she's right. But because I was parented in a generation where it was, you should feel bad about yourself. You are a bad person if you did something wrong. So we have to be careful about that. We need to have new habits and responses. Look through the lens of your child. First, look through the lens of yourself. How would you want to be treated if you did something wrong? Now, the older a child gets and they do something wrong and they already have guilt, they're already like, oh my gosh, I just broke mom's flower pot. Where can I hide it? You know, they're already feeling guilty. Or, you know, I got a little too aggressive with my younger sibling and the fight's over and the child's crying and they're like, yeah, I really did it, you know. They're already feeling that layer of guilt. 
Okay, so pointing out that, oh, you're so bad. How could you? All right, moving on here. How do you move the needle from punishment to discipline? One of the ways that I think is really powerful to do this is to have, this is proactive parenting. This is what I said I was going to talk about. It's like envisioning the parent you want to become. It's more of a faith-based, like faith being you are believing for something that doesn't exist. Like you can't see it, but you can envision it. You would like to be this parent. So how do you move that needle? You have a set of if-then statements for your parenting protocols, and you focus on the behavior instead of the person. And I'll just give you a kind of a a fill-in-the-blank one. If you do blank then blank happens. And let your kids know who what these are. These aren't something you keep hidden in the notes app on your phone and you pull it out and go, all right, you're in for it now. Let the consequence be the discipline. All right, I'll give you one from my family. And this one was just a really practical one. Because there were seven kids in my family, so there are nine people in my family, we had chores which I think are very good for children. And it wasn't like I'm standing there like an orphan Annie with um, a bottle in my hand and beating the kids. You know, you got to clean up. It's hard knock life for us. I might start singing that. (laughs) Anyway, it wasn't like that at all. It was having systems in place so that everybody could participate and so that things got done not perfectly, but things got done and we were a family unit working together. It's so important. When I hear people say, well, I'm not going to make my kids do anything. Well, what are they going to do when they're an adult and they don't know how to do anything? Okay, that was a side note. But anyway, (laughs) here we go. This was one of our if then. If it is your dish day, like it's your day to load the dishwasher, you can do it yourself or you can pay a sibling to do it for you. That was our if-then statement about chores, any chore. And I have my youngest daughter really, really racked up some money that way because her brothers would be like, hey, Anya, will you do this? Sure, $5. So, and what's the point? The point is that the job gets done and also the kids are learning there are systems in the world as well. Okay. All right, moving on to another one. If you hit your sister, you must apologize. Now, for me, it also depended on the severity of the hitting or the fight or the whatever that went on, because sometimes I would add on, and you're going to go do one thing she asked you to do, or you might have to help her with her chore. Sometimes I would add those things on. Okay. If you break a sibling's toy, you must replace it. And here's a really important way to move that needle and to form these if-then statements. Figure out what your triggers are. And once you figure out what your triggers are, like maybe I mentioned in the last podcast, maybe it's people spilling their drink at the dinner table or a messy house or talking back. 
or not doing your chores or not doing your homework, whatever your triggers are, then figure out an if-then statement for them. Proactively parent. And then you take your anger out of that. You take your emotion out of that. And you let the consequence or the statement do its work. So then the child doesn't feel like they're under this scrutiny and criticism and pressure. And like I said before, the punishment, that's punishment, making them feel bad about who they were or who they are. And I'll give you a simple one I instituted with my youngest son. We have these shoe keepers at the door. I got them at Pier 1. They're green. They're really cute. Anyway, (laughs) he would come in and just kick his shoes off and not put them in the shoe sorter. That was kind of a trigger for me. I like things neat. Now, does that mean that all of my parenting is all about making everything neat and orderly and tidy? No. But at the same time, I was teaching him something and getting him to learn a habit of putting his shoes in the shoe keeper. So I said, I'll happily put your shoes in the shoe keeper for you. That's fine. You just, you know, kick them off there. It'll only cost you a dollar. Did I need the dollar? No. Well, maybe. (laughs) Coffee. But anyway, the point was I took my trigger out of out of the situation instead of me saying I cannot believe you didn't put your shoes in the shoe keepers right there like you walk in the door and there it is I would just pick them up put them in and the funny thing is it became this race it became hilarious because he'd already be sitting on the sectional and see me picking up his shoes and just race over and grab them out of my hand I got them mom I'm gonna put them in there and that's okay. But anyway, that, that was one of my triggers, one of my simple triggers that you can just alleviate with an if-then statement. And you're probably thinking, wait a minute, I thought you were talking about cycles of trauma. That is cycles of trauma. We often think of these cycles of trauma, this repetitive intergenerational trauma, as being something as large as what I talked about at the beginning, was being like shocked to see my classmates my college-age classmates already going to the food pantry to get food because that poverty followed the generation. It's Those are one of the intergenerational things that is passed down, but there's many more. And in our parenting, there are a lot of like these little paper-cut traumas. We had a trauma for some reason, or maybe it's just our personality. We like things neat. Maybe somebody in our family doesn't. Like those paper cuts, like they add up. You think about having paper cut traumas, like having them all over your hands to the point that they start getting infected. And when they're infected, they infect our parenting. And then next thing you know, instead of using our if-then statements, we're reactively parenting. And next thing you know, because our stress is overwhelming, because there's one thing after another after another, our trauma bucket overflows, And we regress back to all of these parenting habits that we were like, I was over those. I'm not doing those anymore. Listen, this is really important. Don't expect your kids to read your mind. 
Don't expect your kids to address your triggers and never trip them. I think sometimes we have these super high expectations of our kids because, oh my, oh my goodness, we love them. They're part of our family. They know what really sets me off. Some of them do, but don't have that expectation. That's not their job. That's our job. All right. I'm going to finish up. There's definitely a lot more in the show notes. So when you finish listening to this, you could go to the show notes and learn a little bit more. You can also, which I will link in the show notes, get a copy of Your Kiddo's Trauma Bucket Workbook. And if you already have that, work through it for yourself. Go like, okay, I did all of the assignments she gave me. I did the journaling. I Now I'm keeping track of triggers. I realize which of the traumas were in my kiddos' buckets that set them off. I'm, I'm done all that work. Go back and do it for yourself too. Like, oh, wait, because sometimes parents, and I will just, I know I'm going over a little bit, but I remember being in a workshop with my husband who had a very like secure loving childhood you know two parents just you know and I remember him sitting there and they were talking about something and he just had this epiphany he was like oh my goodness that was one of my things I didn't realize that I didn't realize I was doing that or I didn't realize my parents had had any trauma or you know not that they had tons of trauma but I'm not sharing their story but you get the point you get the point so go through it for yourself Decide which triggers you can address with having systems in place. For example, if not having dinner on the table stresses you and you're scrounging at 4 p.m. trying to figure out what to feed your family, then proactively deal with that. Create a menu plan in advance. And one of the things that I did to address that was because just having so many kids that were so hungry all the time. It's like we had... Snack time twice a day, had a snack basket, and we had a repeating menu plan. All right, so I said I was going to finish up with this, but our trauma triggers may show up in you should know better statements. So think about that. If you start saying to your child, you should know better than, like I would say to Rafael, you should know better than to leave your shoes on the floor instead of putting them in the shoe keeper. Well, That was obviously a trigger for me. So think about some things that you are triggered by. Listen to yourself. If I would have done that when I was growing up, I would have fill in the blank with a horrific punishment. That might be a trigger for you. Like if I would have left a cereal bowl under my bed and it was moldy, I would have been, you know, think about those things. <laughs> that that just kind of came to me because I remember when my sister came over one day and she was down in my, went to my eldest daughter's bedroom and she brought some dishes out and she's like, oh, I can't believe that she had food in her room. And it was like, that was obviously a trigger for her. So think about those sorts of statements you're making to your kids Okay, and this is last but not least. Generational trauma can also represent as ideologies or practices. Here are some examples. 
we don't pursue diagnosis for our children because we don't like labels. We don't go to therapy because it makes us look weak. What happens in our home is nobody's business. That was a big one when I was growing up. I survived X, Y, and Z, and it didn't kill me. You can survive it too. Like, for example, if your child comes home and says, you know, he's being bullied, well, it'll toughen you up, kid. Those, those are trauma. Those are signs of trauma. So beware of language like that, like this. So if you hear yourself saying these things, examine it. Always? Is it always that? No. But just examine it. This is how we always did it. It was good enough for me. It's good enough for you. No one cared what I felt when I was growing up, so no one cares what you feel. Get over it. Toughen up. So put your parenting statements through that hurt or harm filter. Are they hurting? Are they harming? We don't want to cause our children harm, right? While we know our kiddos are going to face hurt and they already have in this world, we don't want to intentionally harm them in our parenting. Even if we were harmed by our parents simply because they followed their generational trauma's cues. So I'm going to finish up by just saying this. Obviously, I am not trying to send you on a witch hunt to all, you know, your parents' past and everything. And your parents may have had some great practices that you want to preserve and repeat, especially if you had a secure attachment with them. I had, I call it a blessing and an advantage now of experiencing both chaotic parenting based on my parents' old wounds and their generational trauma, followed by a second act of redeemed trauma. So when my mother committed her life to Christ and she began to parent in a new way while she was on her healing journey. And so that's really what awoke my passion to this. Like, yeah, I've seen it happen. It's true. It can happen. It's possible. Okay, so I keep saying I'm going to finish up with this. this last thing I promise because I am a Christian I know that redeemed trauma is a trauma that's been transformed by the gospel of good news but also like I shared in the last episode about John 5 and the man at the pool of Bethesda there are those four steps that you go through but as I say in my book a positive adoption story when I became a Christian I found out that I was a new creature Like reading the scripture, you're a new creature in Christ. But I didn't know what sort of creature I was. Coming to terms with my past has been a lifelong journey. It hasn't been an all-consuming task, so I don't want you to go there. But rather a gradual process. Time does not heal all wounds, but working through forgiveness and healing, through conversations, letters, and prayers acceptance, journaling, all of those things that I've talked about. Even though my phobias originated in my early childhood on my father's watch, it doesn't mean that they were all due to him personally. He was fighting his own demons and trying to keep his family together. That's from a positive adoption story. So just remember that your parents had their own trauma 
They had their own things to deal with. And I am not saying this to condone anything, but I'm also saying right now, which I always ask my guests, like, what is one thing? What is one thing that you would leave the audience with talking about this moving forward? I would say that one thing, you're not going to be able to do it all right now. Just start with those if-then statements. Start with those things that are triggering you and maybe create one this week and start using it with your kiddos. If this happens, then this happens. And when you state those to your children, don't be angry. Don't do it with the spirit of anger. Just say it, let it happen, and walk away. Is it going to take a while for your kids to adjust to the fact that you're suddenly, instead of being angry with them, giving them just, you know, if you don't want to do the dishes, pay someone else to do it. If you don't, you know, giving them these sorts of if-then statements. It's going to take a while for them to adjust. So don't expect them to be Pollyanna and be like all super happy. Like, there we go. Everything's been resolved. So I hope this episode has helped you. And I hope it's gotten you thinking and having conversations with your spouse and addressing these issues. And I will see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Trauma-Informed Parenting. Make sure you subscribe on TraumaInformedParenting.com to receive a free resource and receive a newsletter plus updates when books or new courses are released. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Podomatic, or Spotify and leave a review so other listeners can find trauma-informed parenting and know the value of the show. You're welcome to send me an email to contact at traumainformedparenting.com.